What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science. Today, we've got a conversations episode where we get to hear from people who are doing interesting work, pursuing their dreams, and adding value to the world. We're going to get inside their heads, see what makes them tick, and walk away with a new perspective that'll help us in our journeys. These episodes are much less structured and formal than what you normally hear on the show. They're going to be raw, unedited, and unproduced for the most part. I'll still have my intro music and stuff like that. But thanks for tuning in, and, and I'd love to hear what you guys think about these episodes. Feel free to shoot me an email at theartistofdatascience at gmail.com with your thoughts. Our guest today is a highly skilled and seasoned veteran in data engineering who's been deployed on many big data tours. He's continuously adapting to new technologies with a focus on data extraction, transformation, analysis, and data pipelines for developing optimal architectures. Like a true intrapreneur and linchpin, he's always eager to find the most lucrative solution, saving clients valuable time and money. Like a true engineer, he's passionate about clean code and well-documented code, teamwork, and sharing his knowledge with our growing field. When he's not wrangling gnarly code, you can find him on Instagram under the alias Azure Will, where he makes informative, easily digestible posts about Python and big data so you can keep improving your skills and develop big data mastery. So please help me in welcoming our guest today. A data engineer whose weapon of choice is Microsoft Azure Services, Dennis Will. Dennis, my friend, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today, man. Super excited to have you. Here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, guys. So just a little bit of backstory. So I, I ran into to Dennis on Instagram probably about a year ago. And we're both, like, you know, I think starting our Instagram game. And uh, he put out some of the most amazing bite-sized bits of Python and big data wisdom and knowledge and was able to grow his audience from like zero to 20K. And how long, how long did that take you? A couple of months. A couple of months, man. That's insane. And so he's been giving me tips on, on Instagram and stuff, uh, which I tried to implement, but I'm not as good as this guy is. Uh, but you guys got to check him out whenever you get a chance. Azure will on Instagram. Um, but let's, let's get to learn a little bit more about you, Dennis. So Talk to us about where you grew up and what was it like there? I actually grew up in Berlin where I'm still living right now in Germany. And that's a pretty normal big city, so nothing too exciting. That's pretty much all about it. I've, we've considered moving somewhere else, but actually been here for now 27 years and um, might be moving soon. Not sure about that, but um, so far I've been very happy. Yeah, where would you possibly be moving to within Germany or or plan to move within Germany for work? That's one thing I'd like to get uh, to Switzerland actually in the future, nice. maybe a little far future, like five years or so. But for now, staying in Germany. Nice. Yeah, I was in Berlin for maybe like three or four days back in two thousand and eight. Quite a long time ago, man. Yeah, it was cool. We stayed at this interesting hostel. I can't remember the name or anything, but I just remember there being just amazing, like falafel everywhere. Like on, on yeah, that's that's part of the culture. Yeah, and yeah, man. when you say everywhere, you mean everywhere. It's like like every second building you'll see is going to be like a falafel or uh, a kebab building. Um, that's normal. Yeah, yeah. But the thing about Berlin is that the price of the city itself, they are like each their own individual city. That's mainly because uh, the history was that they were uh, different cities back then. So most people that are born in um, one area here, they generally tend to stay in that area. And that's where you find all your friends and most of the stuff. So that's a nice city. That's yeah, a nice city too. Yeah, I liked it, man. I, I really enjoyed because I did a few walking tours when I was there, went like saw pieces of the old Berlin Wall, like Checkpoint Charlie and all that stuff. Yeah. So it was cool getting a bit of that history. And like, I'm really, really into like street art, like graffiti type of street art. Yeah, that's, that's a perfect city for that. <laughs> yeah, man. Berlin's got such amazing uh, art out there. Do you like, what, what do you think? Are you are you uh, big into art? Do you go to like the museums, check out art or anything like that? Well, I used to actually. Uh, there's a lot of museums here that I like. I'm more into history, um, but, but art is nice too. Yeah. And as you mentioned, graffiti, it's everywhere here. And it's actually part of the culture. So it's not uh, like people don't dislike it. They think, no, no, that has to go away. It's actually part of the culture. And I think that's very nice. Yeah. Any specific type of history that you're into or just general world history? Just in general. Yeah. So talk to us. So you're currently working as a data engineer, got mm -hmm. an interest in history. So 
like in high school, what did you think your future would look like? Were you were you thinking? Uh, like you I didn't this? think I was going to become a data engineer. I actually wanted to become a pilot in high school, and wow. uh, was always a dream. But I just got into programming like during late high school times, and I noticed that it's actually quite a lot of fun, and it challenges you to think about problems and. Just kept doing that, and in the end, I landed where I am right now. So, in high school, when you were learning programming, were you kind of teaching yourself, or was there classes that you were taking? And you know, Germany is not the most um, what's a good word for that. Um, we're not we're a little behind on the whole digital stuff. So, uh, when I went to school, you did have computer science classes, which were like this is how you turn on your PC, this is how you do this and that, like Word, Excel. So you basically teach yourself. That's what you do. Watching YouTube videos, getting books, and just learning and learning and learning and continuing like that. That's Small cool. projects, later bigger projects. And what was the language of choice back then? Back then, it was actually starting with uh, like how most people started C and Java. But I got into Python pretty quickly, and I think it's good to do it this way. Or a lot of people start with Python, and then they get into C or Java, and then they notice, oh, it's not that easy in other languages, but. If you start to see, you actually have to understand how everything works in the back. And that's, that actually helps a lot still now to this day. That's the interesting point, because I'm traditionally background of mine is, a, is as a statistician, right? Very academic kind of background. And I use primarily uh, SAS and R when I was, you know, going through grad school and, and all that stuff. And first few jobs I had recently started getting into Python. And I was wondering, I was like, you know, I do want to learn another programming language and I do want to learn something that will kind of help me develop an intuition from the ground up. So for anybody out there who really wants to get that intuition from the ground up on how things work, do you think C would be the way to go? It's difficult to say. I mean, I think Python is actually a very good language to get into, even as your first language, but you still should be open to what the language offers and what is offered beyond Python. So I think C is a good starting point, but I think it might actually turn off a lot of people because it is very inherently difficult. Like a lot of concepts in C, like, like the way pointers work, that's something that you don't even have to deal with in Python if you don't want to. And the whole way memory is managed, uh, that's stuff that you might not like too much. Uh, if, you, if you're someone who just thinks, okay, programming is very cool, I can do, do like data science and so on, that might not be the best starting language. But if yeah. you want to get into it, then yes, it is a good starting language. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. For, so for anybody listening that wants that deep intuition, that, you know, the real rigorous kind of understanding of how computers work, then C would be the way. If not, just stick with Python, I guess, eh? Pretty much. So you started getting involved in like software engineering and stuff back in high school. Like, how did you get involved in or how did you get interested in data engineering? Well, how do you get interested in it? I didn't uh, voluntarily get into data engineering. I always loved the the concept of data and how it's getting bigger and dealing with big data sets. But I didn't go out and look for a job that was just covering that. I actually just, during my studies, um, pretty early on, just wanted to get something a little more practical. So I was searching for some jobs online in my city and I landed in a consulting company, very small one that you wouldn't know, and pretty much was open to anything uh, as long as it was a little more technical. And then... Pretty much on my first day, they said, okay, this is the project you will be working on. Uh, this is what you should do. Then I started getting into it. I started working on the projects. Uh, was a whole lot of reading I had to do. And I just, it was so much more to uncover every single day. I was just watching till, I don't know, 11 p.m. YouTube videos on new, on new concepts. And there's so much to learn. And it was pretty good because the company gave me all the resources I needed to practice with big data. And then I just realized that's, what I want to do and what I want to continue doing. So well, let, I want to ask what a day in your life is like as a data engineer. But before I get to that question, I'm curious, because I think knowing a little bit of data engineering is important, even for us data scientists. I think we mm -hmm. definitely need to know some of this stuff. What are a couple of concepts, maybe two to three concepts that you think would be extremely beneficial for a data scientists to learn about data science so that we can help make each other's lives easier? Well, in general, maybe how the whole, the concept of data engineering, what the purpose is, is important in order to work together. I mean, what we are doing is basically getting data um, out of various sources. And this might be 
very structured data that might be already in the database, so it will be a little easier, or it's something like a log file from the machine and has an awful structure. And what we're doing is trying to get all of that data into a unified structure somewhere. And what you do with that data after it's pretty much data science is of course a big option and um, that obviously needs that structured data. But it's not just that, it's, it's several other analysis that can be done. And I think for data scientists, it's important to know what you want to do, what kind of data you need. And yeah, maybe also how big the data is going to be, because that is always a challenge. Like if you have smaller data sets, it's always easier for data engineers to get that data. But if it's coming from a lot of machines everywhere, then you should know exactly what kind of data that, you, uh, that it is that you want. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, definitely makes sense. So, because, you know, we're so used to working with like flat files and stuff when we are doing our analysis. So it's good to kind of understand the the lineage of that data, how it goes from wherever it's created into this this flat format. And there might be some messiness in terms of how it's. uh, I mean, that's basically the process that as a data engineer, the first thing you are is, it is like a consultant. You talk to the, the person in business and they tell you that they have this data and they tell you what they want and then your job is basically in an ideal world you have a big team in a realistic world it's just you and then you have to plan an infrastructure that you want to build and this is actually the biggest thing that you have to think about it's generally not that difficult to get the data out to extract the data to process and transform it and to get it the right shape but it's also a little bit of a financial things from the best word because you can use a lot of services that are very expensive and powerful and to get the job done very efficiently but um, usually companies don't want to spend that much money so that's why you have to uh, think up a solution that is very efficient very memory efficient and in the end also gets the job done but again it's always what the customer wants and if they want to do data science, then your first job is to think about how I can get the relevant data out of whatever system we want to get the data out from. Yeah, I like I like that point a lot. It's always about what the customer wants first, always, right? Exactly. It's that I think focus that we need to adopt for ourselves as a. And often they don't know what they want, so you'll have to start getting that info out as well. Yeah. So, do you use any? frameworks like or packages to help you with data engineering does anything like that exist that we should probably know about or um it always depends on the type of data i mean for for big data apache spark is a big thing and it's gotten a lot more popular a lot of people when they're searching for when when you see a data engineering position it's always going to be you have to know apache spark you have to know like obviously like azure uh, aws or google cloud services and apache spark is basically a it's a framework that allows parallel computing and it will enable you to get, it's basically, it used to be MapReduce, which is the idea of splitting up data into several parts and then uh, reducing them to one part again. And it's basically working with clusters. You have one big cluster, which has several workers, and this allows you to process data in parallel. And what I don't like is that it is a very useful to know, but most in most cases you don't need that it's, it's very expensive it's only for very huge data sets and companies like to use for every small thing so a lot of the things you can actually do with uh, other services like like servos functions are a very good example those are like a lot uh, for azure they're called azure functions and aws it's called aws lambda and um, they are more difficult to set up but you can do pretty much the same things that you can do with uh, that you would be able to do with apache spark so those are two things I can think of. And thing about this field is that there's going to be new things every month and you have to get into those and you have to think about, hey, is this something I could use? Is this useful? Sometimes it's a waste of time. Sometimes you actually learn something very valuable. That's an excellent point. There's always new stuff popping up and you always have to try to try to keep up on stuff. How do you manage that? What's your, if a new tool, new tech comes out that you either hear about, read about, what's your process for determining, is this something I should spend my time? Actually, very good question. Um, and something that I think can make you very valuable if you know how to do it right. What I like to do is um, basically I'm looking always for new news if there's something coming out. Uh, if 
I am working mostly with Azure services, so I try to stick with those. But what you have to remember is that Azure, AWS, and even Google Cloud, like all the services in there, they have their parallels in the other service. So it's not going to be something entirely new. So I'm looking out for those news. There's a lot of YouTube channels you can watch. Like for Azure, there's something called Azure Friday. Every Friday, they just present something new. And then I take a look at that. You can also, uh, obviously, LinkedIn is always a very good source for that. And you can take a look at the videos first. And if you notice, hey, that's actually quite interesting, then it's very easy to set up a service, uh, like, like a resource in, in Azure and just test it out. It's also not that expensive most of the time because if it's um, something that's very new, it's usually a preview. Like a private preview, the prices are very, very low. But in general, you will know when looking at the videos, looking at the documentation, you can generally guess this is something that we could use or something that's not that useful. I like that point you made about all the cloud services have their parallels in cross GCP, AWS, Azure, what yeah. have you. Like they all have, essentially they're all doing the same things. They just name it differently. They work a little bit different. So that's an excellent point because something people always ask from my mentees at Data Science Dream Job is, which should I learn? And I'm always like, well, it's going to change depending on which company that you go to. And then yeah. I think the answer is right there, right? They're all the same as long as you understand the principles of what's going on. It used to be job positions. They were asking for something particular, like just Azure. But most of them right now, they just ask for experience in either Azure, AWS, or GCP. The thing is, it also depends on where you live. Here in Europe, uh, Azure and AWS are the most prominent. Google Cloud is a little bit uh, lagging behind. Best example I have is uh, Databricks is basically a very big platform. They are also basically making Apache Spark possible. It's a platform that's enabling you to integrate Apache Spark. And they were available on Azure and AWS for a while. And I think last week they started to be Actually, this week, they announced that they'll also be cooperating with Google Cloud. So that's one big step. And as he said, it doesn't really matter which one you get into. It's very easy to switch, of course. How did you find yourself getting into Azure? Was it just because the consulting company you started off at, that was the platform of choice? That was pretty much what happened. And actually, in the job interview, they were like, this right here, that's the Azure portal. Take a look at it. And you'll be spending all day in that. And... That's how I got into it. And then I started going to a few months in, I started going to um, meetups. I like meetups a lot. I'm not sure if you have them in, uh, over there. Yeah. Well, they, they used to be before the whole Corona, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I started going to those. I started going to uh, conferences like Microsoft Ignite and it's just a great atmosphere. You can just go there and just several different meetings at the same time. You can take a look, decide for yourself if something that you want. Is this a great talk? And there's a lot of networking and other people that have experiences they tell you about what they have built at their company, their architecture. And this is when I realized that, yeah, Azure is actually offering a whole lot of services, but not everything is good, of course. Like one thing I would complain about is documentation for Microsoft. It's always awful. <laughs> That's just what I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's very circular, their documentation. I always yeah. have to link and then link and then have like next thing I try to figure out one thing and I've got like seven tabs open because yeah and to just keep going and the thing with Azure is that we have a in our subscription we have like premium support and you'd think that the people working there would be experts at what they do but realistically they also only look at the documentation so especially with newer services coming out you try them out and you have a question and all they can do is look at the documentation and in the end you just have to figure it out yourself yeah. but I don't think that's going to be different for uh, AWS, to be honest. How important do you think being resourceful has been in your career? Do you think that's a underrated skill for data professionals? I think that's actually a very good skill to have as a data professional because you can do things by the book. You can do things as recommended. And I know a lot of companies that I've been in touch with that I've worked with, they like to use like the Microsoft or Databricks consultants and they basically tell them how to use their services and that is, of course, a good thing, but it's also going to be a very expensive thing if you do it this way. And being resourceful for me means always taking a look at how can I do things in an alternate way. That doesn't mean you should build everything yourself, like the whole pipeline, the whole architecture. You don't have to build everything from scratch yourself if it's something that's already uh, been offered by Microsoft, but it is something you should consider. And it is a lot of fun to do it this way. It'll, may, it'll mean you have to maintain a lot more yourself uh, instead of trusting like Databricks or Microsoft to do it. But at the same time, it 
gives you an amazing amount of insights on how the whole process is working. So it helped me a lot. Right on, man. That's an excellent point. I love that. Absolutely love that kind of attitude. So question that's been making my head kind of scratch here is the difference between a data architect and a data engineer. So how are these two roles similar? How are they different? I ask you the same about uh, the difference between a data scientist and a data analyst, because that's also two things that seem to be the same to me sometimes. Um, first of all, we have to, you have to remember that for every company, it's different. Like some person is looking for a data analyst, but they actually mean a data engineer or data scientist or data architect. Um, Personally, to me and in my company right now, a data architect is the one that thinks up the whole architecture, like they're building the infrastructure, uh, they're planning to build the infrastructure and what services uh, that we would need, but they don't actually implement it. The person that is setting up the pipelines, the pipelines are the things that basically deploy the resources and the person that builds this architecture, that is what the data engineer does. And that's what I'm doing at the moment. But as I mentioned, uh, a lot of companies, those roles are merging. So for me right now, I'm pretty much doing the whole thing. Like from, from the very start, I'm, I'm thinking of the infrastructure, I'm building it, I'm maintaining it, I'm um, thinking about how to optimize it. And it's just the reason that there's not that many data professionals at the moment, but that's something that should grow in the future. And you're still in consulting, right? Uh, no, I actually went out of consulting about a year after I was in that company. And now I work at a somewhat big German company called Zeiss. Um, I think you should know them for glasses. They make glasses. They also make medical devices, which is what, what I'm working with at the moment, and a lot of microscopes and so on. And what I do there is, as I mentioned, I work with the medical devices and I extract the information from those. Those are actually operational microscopes that you use in a hospital for a neurosurgery. And I extract that information and um, analyze it and it's basically coming in from all over the world. That's awesome, man. That's super cool microscopes for for brain surgery essentially yeah for, for brain surgeries among others like there's a lot of other devices but yeah in general that's data that we are getting from from box files all over the world and it's pretty cool you can pretty much track everything that happens during an operation you can determine an error and why an error has happened and that has actually helped a lot uh, with the development of future devices and improvement of the current devices that's awesome man Thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that. I would ask more probing questions, but I'm sure there's confidentiality issues here. Yeah. So much, so, <laughs> so much I want to learn about that. That's really fascinating. In, in, in medicine, that is a very big issue. This is also why things tend to move a little slowly. Like when you try to improve something, it takes a while, but that's normal. And none of the data um, I'm dealing with is confidential data. That's always the, the first point. Like you're not getting... Uh, like you're not going to be able to see what patient they operated on or something. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. I was in pharmaceuticals for five years. I worked as a biostatistician. So I'm very familiar with the regulations and, and things like that. So, Can't get in the way, but it's obviously necessary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when you were in consulting, let's kind of think back then when you're thinking about how to come up with a plan or how you're going to solve a, a tough problem. I guess, what is your problem solving process like, right? Let's say you, you just, client comes up to you and says, we need data architecture in place. Like, what are some of the things that you would ask your client so that you can figure out what it is that you need to go do? Well, I'd first ask them what their end goal is with that data. Like in, in general, what the, the process is going to be, they're going to tell you, okay, we want to analyze that data and maybe put it in a dashboard or something. And then I'll take that information, present them with a first draft. And here, the good thing is that if you if you work with consulting, and I have a lot of uh, friends that still work with consulting, it's different companies, different projects, but basic skeleton of the project might be very similar. Uh, for Azure, it might be something like a data lake that's a center, like a data lake. You can imagine just all the data is coming in one central place. And from there, you can build the pipelines, you can analyze that data, you can transform that data and push it, push it elsewhere. So often you can actually suggest something similar for people, but then there might be some use cases where it just doesn't work because it's a very special project. And uh, one advice here I can give is that you should always be honest, like don't overpromise, like don't oversell, don't try, try to tell them, okay, you can do this and that and all of that. Sometimes it really is not possible. Sometimes the things that they want are not possible. So often as a consultant, you first have to tell your client what it is that they really want, even though that sounds a little bit stupid. That's one thing I can say about that. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate that. 
it's always it's always interesting for me to hear kind of what people's problem solving process is like. It really helps kind of me build my own problem solving technique. And I know the audience. Yeah, I know what you mean. That. So where do you see the field of data engineering headed in the next two to five years? Depends on where you're looking. For Europe, there's still a lot of companies that have um, data engineering was built on something that used to be called business intelligence first. And that was, that's a lot of SQL stuff. And that's what also a lot of people think data engineer does is do SQL stuff and work with databases. And while it's true to some extent, big data is really the thing that's changed everything. And I think that's going to be the big step that most companies will accept that the way they have their setups right now, which is like some on-premise database, that's not going to be the future. And they have a lot of data and they want that analyzed. So they will move to the cloud. They will move to big data architectures. And there's the need for a lot of data professionals. And data science is a thing, a very good example that in the previous years has grown. And a lot of companies say, we want to do machine learning. We want to do data science, but they don't even know what that means. So (laughs) that's why I think that it's going to get more important because for data science to be able to work properly, you need a good architecture, you need the data in the right place. And... I think it's only going to get bigger from here. I absolutely agree with you. I saw, I read something. I mean, I'm sure you've probably seen this thing pop up as well. Data engineering jobs are are going up and data science jobs are are going down. Like that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a good thing that there are more data engineering roles because the more data engineering roles you have, then a byproduct of that will be more data science roles. Exactly. Now data scientists can get I think this might be like a cycle, like it means that right now there's more data engineering in demand, but in five to 10 years, it might be more data science again because there are more architectures. But uh, it's a good thing that you mentioned, like especially last year, I've heard from a lot of friends and also colleagues that with a lot of companies last year afraid of what the future would bring, they would stop data science projects and a lot of data science would have not much to do at this place. And that changed quite quickly, like half a year after everything was back to normal, but it's also how you can see the relationship between data science and data engineering because I was doing more than ever last year because my um, my projects didn't change that much. But I think it's, as I mentioned, it's, it's going to be a cycle. Like it's going to be right now it's data engineering. In a few years, it's definitely going to be data science again. So what can aspiring data engineers do now to help prepare themselves for the future? That's actually a very good question. And um, I have to think of one meme that I saw a while back, uh, <laughs> but it was a data science meme where people were asking, uh, what does a data scientist need? And then there's going to be a lot of uh, math-related things, but the real thing they should learn is Python because most people just ask for Python in both data engineering and data science. So if you want to get into data engineering right now, I would recommend taking a look at three things. One is still going to be databases and SQL, not because you're going to use it a lot. I don't use SQL that much. I set up databases and I build them, but everything happens automatically. Like the things I insert into the database, if everything is happening via Python code using an ORM. And you still have to understand the structure of a database and how you can design it because the data I have right now, it grows exponentially every day. There's just so much more coming in. And if you set up a database or any data storage that is not optimal, you will regret it in the future because it's going to be too much to maintain. So get into that, into how to set up a database. Even the basics of relational databases will help a lot. Second thing, as I mentioned, Python is a very good language to get into that. And the third thing is that you mentioned before, like the big data frameworks like Apache Spark, they are very good to know because a lot of companies then in interviews, they'll ask questions about that for sure. Yeah, I've been upping my game and knowledge about databases with this book in particular. It's the the manga guide <laughs> to databases. I don't know if you've seen this before, but... That's the top-notch top uh, state-of-the-art material. It is, man. It is. This is a good book, especially if you're like me and that stuff kind of bores you out sometimes. It's, it is. It can be very boring. And when I take a look at... Like when I work in consulting, and I know we have to stray off a little bit, but it's something I have to talk about. When I work in consulting, it's the same as it is that was three years ago. And right now in a lot of companies, it's still the same thing. Like these consulting companies, they try to offer data engineering, but most of it is, again, this business intelligence stuff, like people maintaining SQL, um, not just databases, but also data warehouses, which is basically just a huge data database. And then I would take a look at what my colleagues are doing. And it's like a thousand lines of SQL queries. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that. 
that's one thing that is very boring and you will never have to write these big queries. That's one thing I can promise you, but you should be able to understand what that query would do. And just the concept of, you know, how the relational database works is very important. Yeah, 100% agree. Speaking of, uh, we're talking about some boring aspects of our jobs. Maybe, I guess I might be leading the question too much here, but. No, no, let's go ahead. <laughs> what, what are some of your favorite misconceptions about what it is that a data engineer does? Actually, quite a good question. And something I talk a lot about colleagues and it comes up a lot. One thing I just mentioned, I think that all we do is do SQL and maintain databases and so on. That's a very popular one. And this is when I take a look at the, there's going to be a lot of recruiters contacting me and a lot of uh, job offers that I take a look at. And I'm just thinking, you're not really looking for a data engineer. You're looking for someone to maintain your data warehouse on-premise likely. That's one thing. And that's also something I can uh, highly recommend to not uh, get turned off by because most people now realize really what a data engineer is, but it was a lot worse a few years ago. Another thing is, and I think that also happens to data scientists or data analysts, like they think that like all you do is build a dashboard. I personally, I have built some dashboards, but really what we do is provide the data for that dashboard so it can run optimally. And really building a dashboard is often a click, uh, a drag and drop thing. So that actually bothers me a little bit, but I also find it very funny because it's, it's often what people think uh, about the job. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, maybe you might have touched on it, but what can a data scientist do to make the lives of their data engineering colleagues easier? Uh, there's many things you could say here. One of the things I mentioned earlier was to understand what you actually need, what kind of data do you want, what's the format, where should it be? And don't be afraid to ask questions. And I, I don't know how it is over uh, there in Canada or in the United States, but here, most of the people that I work in as a data scientist have a PhD. It's just going to be like that. And they don't come from a computer science background. They come likely like you from a more math background or physics and so on. At my company, most people working there are uh, physicists. And I think it's really great. And they bring in a lot of knowledge. And a lot of them are also... I like that they can adapt and realize, okay, you need this kind of knowledge. And they do ask good questions. And this is one thing I can advise. Always ask questions if you don't understand something. If you don't know how a cloud architecture is working, even if it's a very simple thing, if you don't know how a version control system like Git is working, uh, and a lot of people don't, just, just ask. It's Everybody has to start somewhere and you, you have to learn and nobody's going to mind a question like that. Try to not just adapt, but try to also make your own suggestions because a data engineer won't always know what data science looks like. So it's always working together. It's always working hand in hand. Such an important point you made about asking questions. Like, just ask. Like, if you're stuck, don't pretend like you understand yeah. it. Don't pretend like you, everything's okay because you're just going to delay your entire team. So yeah. do you have any... I guess words of encouragement or advice to share with anyone who's afraid to ask questions because they don't want to look stupid? Maybe something that every teacher said is that there are no stupid questions, but that's actually not true. That's one thing I have to say. Um, you should do a minimum of knowing how to use Google and look something up yourself. So if somebody comes to me and they just ask a question that they literally could have Googled, then I'm going to say, Maybe you should have looked at that yourself. But what I noticed is that most people, they actually Google things themselves and then they come with the result from Google, from Stack Overflow or so, and then they come with me with that. And then they ask something a lot more in depth. And then I realized that's a very good question. And that's what I like to see that people have dealt, they like they've tried to solve a problem before. In general, there is really no, there are no stupid questions. And if you're starting off, you can ask really anything. Like if you don't understand how, the most basic things are working, just ask. I'm not going to mind it. I'm actually going to, I like. The thing is, if you teach something, if you can answer something, you always learn a little bit yourself as well. And that's why I like to answer questions. But if you want to make an impression on the more senior people in your company, you come with a really good question. You get your first draft and then you come asking that question. Then the person is going to be very invested in helping you. Love that. If you teach something, you get to learn it twice, right? Yeah. And speaking of, of teaching Azure Will Instagram page, talk to us about how you kind of got into that 
Uh, I have to say one thing first. I haven't done much with Instagram lately. Like I try to do it every now and then, but it's just if the work gets too much, then sometimes you lose a little inspiration. But what I first did was actually, and I think that was now actually pretty much exactly one year ago, a little more than that. I just thought about, I got into Instagram in general and I thought about like with the whole big data trend going up and up, there's not that many channels offering that. There's, there's always going to be Python channels or programming channels, but there's no one at that point that was offering to a little more than that. So I thought that's actually an interesting thing to teach people. And with Python being such a great language, such a, with such a big community, I also thought that's something I have to teach people and something I just like to get into, but as you mentioned uh, as well, Instagram at the start, it can be very annoying because nothing happens for a month or so and <laughs> can be a bit of a turnoff. But if someone is planning to get into that, that's all I can say, just keep going. It eventually will happen. Yeah. As long as you're passionate. Yeah. I kind of like paused on my Instagram posting. I guess I just have a bigger following on LinkedIn, a lot more engagement. So yeah, more. I saw that. I think that's great. I mean, you have to know your medium and um, where it works best at where, uh, where it's working best. So that's all I can say to encourage. Just maybe if it doesn't work after a few months on something like Instagram or YouTube, maybe just try to find a new medium. That's something that can help as well. And the way you plan out your posts is very, very thoughtful, right? Because you could tell right from the first because you do a lot of carousel posts and the first post in that carousel based on the color based on your the, the different type of crown you have on there <laughs> it, it, it signifies a different type of post right so just for for everybody who's, who's listening here i know they're going to go and check out your page uh kid do you mind telling us how you structure that how you've planned that out for your carousels i mentioned it's been a while actually but uh generally i had these different colors i had the dark posts and the, the brighter posts and i was at first, I tried to make uh, the dark post exclusively Python and the bright post something more data science, big data, data engineering. That's often because I would use Jupyter Notebooks for the bright posts and I would use PyCharm for the dark posts and you know, it just looks better. So <laughs> that was one thing. Later, I experimented with the crowns to try to symbolize a little bit of difficulty of the post. Like I had the bronze one, the silver one, and uh, it was a silver, a gold, and a diamond crown. And I thought uh, people would immediately be able to tell, hey, this is a little higher level, this is a little lower level. And I got that feedback as well, but I also got the feedback, what do the crowds mean? So <laughs> and it went both ways. But in general, the, the, the starting page is going to be what the topic is about. And I always try to have a very catchy title and ask a question, like have a subtitle that kind of makes you think a little bit. And yeah, then I try to basically design my posts so that anyone could understand them. And the difficult thing about Instagram is you have a maximum of 10 slides, set 10 characters you can put in. Realistically, it's only going to be in eight or nine because the first is going to be the starting page and the last is going to be the thank you for uh, looking at my post page. So with eight pages, and if you make the font too small, I wouldn't make the font too small. People are not going to like that. So you have to make it big enough to be readable and you have to put in some images and some uh, some code as well. And I thought it was quite challenging. And yeah, that's what I actually liked about it, that you could put a complicated problem in just eight carousels with a rather big font. And if people can understand something there, then you know you're doing it right. Yeah, man, your, your posts are really, really awesome. I really enjoyed them. So you made a post a while back on, on the same Instagram page about why we shouldn't use functional programming. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, I, I don't know much about this. It's just, I was recently rereading a book called the unicorn project. I'm not sure if you've, uh, it. it's a fictional book. You'll definitely really, really enjoy it. Fictional book about a software development team working on a, a, mm -hmm. essentially a data project. And actually the main protagonist, she's all about like functional programming and using Lisp and all this. And I was like, kind of, reading into it, just trying to understand what it, what it was all about. And then I guess just coincidentally, I was researching you the same day, preparing the questions. And I saw that post about the functional programming. So I figured, why don't we get into this? So talk to us about what functional programming is and why we shouldn't use it. Uh, first thing I have to say is that the post actually made me realize the bad side of Instagram. I actually got a lot of hate for that and a lot of people complaining about it. The people that, it was actually what I mentioned, the title has to be a little catchy to get people's attention. But in the end, what I was saying in the post is that obviously it's up to everyone. But, but to get back to your question, the idea of functional programming is, as the name is saying, it's a very big field. It's a program paradigm, just like object-oriented programming would be. 
functional programming, the idea is that you apply functions to, to objects to basically modify them, to mutate them. But you don't want to have something like a shared state, like, like you would have an objects and classes and so on. You, you basically focus on, it's a very uh, declarative idea of programming. It's a big field. And I was talking about Python in that post. And I was talking about some of the concepts I just mentioned, like applying functions in Python. We have the map, the filter, and also the reduce functions. And maybe should quickly uh, explain what they are. It's actually a very simple concept. Like, like map, you can imagine you have the idea of, uh, you have an iterable, which is a collection, like a list or an array. And the idea of map is that you apply some sort of function on every element in that list. It could be something as simple as squaring all the elements in one list. And that is what map does. And filter on the other hand is very similar. You have the idea of, you basically define a function and it should always be a function that returns a truth value, like true or false. And then you check that condition on every element in that in the iterable, in the list, and if it's true or false. And the result will be a filter, like the name says, of only the truthy values from that function. So again, the idea is always very similar. You use a function and apply it on some sort of object or some iterable. And it's very, very useful. And a lot of people that went to university, they will have covered these concepts to no end if you study computer science. You learn them in Java, you learn them in JavaScript. And they're very useful, as I mentioned, but it's not very clean code. And one thing about Python and the thing I love about it is that the code is very concise, it's very clean. Like you can read, you can take a look at it and you will know immediately this is what the code is doing. And in Python, it would be nice if I had the post now I could show that a little better, but in Python, um, if you want to use map or filter, often you're going to be filtering something and then mapping the result of that filtered uh, iterable. And again, it's going to be so nested, so deeply nested, it's just not going to be readable. And if I look at code, I need to be able, without comments, I actually don't like to use comments. It has to be very, basically, at the, the, the first look, you need to know what the code is doing. And that is not possible with these concepts. And what Python offers is something like list comprehensions or generator expressions. And they are very, very cool. They can be done in one line. And the most important thing is, is that they're like English language. It's basically saying, do this for uh, all the elements in that list. It's very easy for people to understand. And that's why a lot of people love Python. Yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to link to that post in the uh at this timestamp in the show notes so that people can check that out so they won't miss out on that. Uh, the, the, the bottom line was at the end that no one is a bad programmer if they use these uh, concepts like map or filter. And one big thing is recursion. That's also something that's a big part of functional programming. Recursion is very cool. It makes code very clean. Uh, it's also a very complicated um, concept that in my university, they just like from day one, they told you recursion is going to be the very big thing. It's the best thing ever. You have to understand it. I don't think I've used much recursion since then. The idea is that the function is going to be able to call itself. You have a base case, and then the function is just going to keep calling itself. And it's very cool for something like, I think the best example is the Fibonacci numbers or calculating the factorial of a number. The problem with recursion is that it can get very, very slow. You have to imagine the function keeps calling itself, and it's just going to blow up at some point for the Fibonacci numbers as well. If you have a bigger number, you always have to calculate the smaller Fibonacci numbers again and again and again. It's just going to blow up. It's very slow. It's very inefficient. That's what a lot of people don't seem to realize. That go a little broader here and go back to data engineering. If you build an architecture and you have to um, process a lot of data, something that may seem very small in your line of code can blow up quite quickly because if you have millions or billions of files coming in and you have to do the same thing over and over and over and over again, every second you can save there, it's going to be very valuable in the end. So it's always important to know how to design your code to be most efficient. And yeah, that's one thing I wanted to convey in the post. Wonderful, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate that deep dive. Uh, there's a lot to learn there. So for, for people out there who want to build out like a data engineering project, data science projects, everybody kind of has an idea of what to do for those, but. Yeah, a lot of fun too, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. But what about like data engineering project? Like how do we, what's, do you have like any tips, any ideas on, on, you know, a project? 
it's actually not that easy to build that up because if you have to work with uh, big data, you likely don't have access to those kind of data sets. Uh, Microsoft and not just Microsoft, actually, there's going to be a lot of offerings you can look up on Google even. Like you can get these data sets like from everywhere. There's like something like flight data or anything like that available publicly as CSV files. You can download those and build your project around that. What I would recommend, however, is to not go that big yet, to just start with very small files. It can be something as a few megabytes of just text files and CSV files, and maybe even some log files that are very unstructured and think about how can I put some structure to that data. And the end goal should be to get it into some sort of data storage. It doesn't have to be a database, but you can also set up something like an in-memory database like SQLite. It's very popular and you can um, talk to that from the Python easily. And you can also set up something like a PostgreSQL. That's a very, very popular format, uh, a very popular database. You can also set all that up locally. It's not going to cost you any money and you can play around with that. If you want to get into something like Apache Spark, it used to be very difficult because you have to set up the cluster yourself. Like you have to turn your computer into a cluster and setting it up is very difficult. If you have the time, I can highly recommend it because it will teach you so much about setting up concepts and frameworks like that. If you don't have the time, Databricks is actually offering you to try out uh, the Databricks platform for free. They will offer you a cluster, which usually costs a lot of money. It's a very small cluster, but if you're a student, I think it's going to be completely free. And that's what most people can use to get into it. And that's something I might actually send you via email after the podcast. And you can link that because I think it's a great offer. I know a lot of people know about it. Yeah, Databricks is is amazing. And you don't even have to be a student to get the free tier, uh, at least. In- oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. That, that, that's even better. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely very useful. A very, very cool thing to to try out and learn. So what are some tips you can leave with our audience on how we can be more valuable in our jobs. I think something I talked about already is that you should never stop learning and you should never take anything for granted. Just because your current infrastructure, your current architecture is working, doesn't mean it will be the best thing in a year from now or five years from now. So those are two things I would uh, recommend. First of all, keep optimizing your current code, keep optimizing your current infrastructure, like evaluate new services, but also improve on just the basics like your code. You always have to get better. You should always learn more things. The second thing is never be afraid to look elsewhere. Like as you mentioned, we have Azure, AWS, and GCP. They do offer pretty much the same things, but some of them do it a little differently. Like Azure might offer something in a different format that AWS might not. And Never be afraid to switch. Never stay in one position. Like that's the worst thing you could do because then you'll end like some other people that have maintained some SAP uh, code for forever. And I think SAP is the best example. It's it's, it's very difficult to get into. It's been stagnant for twenty years. Um, I have one colleague that came from an SAP field and. Really, if you want to get into SAP, you have to learn the things that were there 30 years ago. And you'll make a lot of money if you get into SAP. And I think that's the main reason that you have to uh, learn all that stuff. So always keep improving, never take anything for granted. I love that, man. Great advice. Thank you very much. So last formal question before we jump into our random round. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? 100 years in the future. Well... Well, first off, with modern medicine, I might still be alive by then. I don't know about that for sure. But um, if I'm not alive uh, at that point, then I don't think it has to be something very big. But as long as you made a change, as long as you made even a small change in some person's life, I think that's going to be something worth remembering by. Like when you're gone and someone will still remember something you did for them, I think that's actually a very good thing to, to be able to say. I love it, man. I absolutely love it. Hopefully, 100 years in the future, YouTube is still around and you know people can, can sure. come back and, <laughs> and, and listen to you talk about uh, all this wonderful advice. You've been but sharing. that question I would actually send right back to you. What do you, uh, what do you want to be remembered for? 100 years from now, man. That's crazy because I ask this question a lot. Like it's, one of, it's like the closing question to, to every one of my interviews. And it's not really one that I've really thought about myself. What it is <laughs> that I actually want to be remembered for? And I hope that I'm just remembered for somebody who's been able to connect people and bring people together. Yeah. That's one thing I hope I get remembered for is just being a connector, being somebody who is able to bring people together. Because I feel like that's been a recurring theme in 
my life, right? So anytime I, I went back home uh, to visit friends and stuff, right? Because I, I, I moved away from Sacramento and, and was gone for a while and I always came back. And every time I came back, everybody would say, oh, you're the reason that we were coming together again. Or every job I've been at be getting people to hang out together that didn't hang out together. And yeah. now I've got these open office hours that I do and, and people are coming together from all parts of the world to meet and share ideas. And I guess that's the main thing I want to be remembered for is, is being a connector. Very cool. Thanks, man. Uh, so let's jump into the random round here. Yeah, so, let's go ahead. So when do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen? And what will that video be about? First question I have to ask is what's the maximum views right now on YouTube? I think it's like 10 billion or something like that. Yeah, not quite 10 billion. It is Baby Shark and it has roughly 8 billion-ish. All right, 8 billion is quite a lot. Uh, 1 trillion. Depends on how we keep growing, but I think it might be possible in the next 10 years. Uh, it could always be something that blows up. But what it's going to be about, I think the top 10 right now, they're like 90% music videos or maybe 100% music videos. So it's going to be likely something like that or likely something that's uh, like Baby Shark. <laughs> yeah, one trillion views, man. Just that number to me is just insane. Like if one trillion, what would that be in terms of like gigabytes or petabytes? Like what is that? A trillion. I think one trillion would be definitely be a whole lot. I mean, but even thinking about petabytes is, I think, going to be the big range of those. Yeah, that's crazy, huh? What a huge number. So, next question here. In your opinion, what do most people think within the first few seconds when they meet you for the first time? That's a really very interesting question. Um, it's hard to answer. I think they will be wondering why I'm smiling so much. I like to smile a lot. <laughs> and generally, I'm very open to people I meet. And I try to get personal quite quickly, sometimes maybe a little too quickly, even in a work environment. I don't know how it is with your company, but in my company, there's still a lot of hierarchies. And some people are very formal. And I'm never like that. I'm very upfront and personal right away. And I've noticed that a lot of people appreciate that. And even the ones that are more conservative, they actually like that you're open. So yeah, yeah I think they will think either I'm too direct or I'm smiling too much. One of the two. That's good, man. That's a good friendly disposition. And I mean, you're like that when we first crossed paths on Instagram, you're just ready to help me and offer advice and, and share information and stuff like that. So I could definitely see you being like that in the workplace, man. That's, that's awesome. So this question here, next one is, do you think you have to achieve something in order to be worth something? Also quite a good question when you think about it and not one I could give a direct and perfect answer to. It depends on how you defined to achieve something or rather how do you find out being worth something? I think everybody can be worth something and everybody is worth something and you don't have to be the very best at something. Uh, and you don't have to keep improving like, like you and I do. I don't think that's necessary to be worth something. Definitely not. Everybody should be proud of what they do. And as long as you're happy with where you're in, uh, at in life, I think then you're definitely worth something. But I think I can recommend everyone to just keep trying the best they can to improve because it's a very, very satisfying feeling when you get something done, when you're ahead of the curve. And again, I can only recommend it. Yeah. Constantly improving yourself, even if just a little bit, it pays dividends, right? It's the yeah. compound interest. So what are you currently reading? Well, I wish I could read a little more at the moment. I haven't read something in a while, to be honest, because there's just so much to do. The last book I read was, I think must have been, Late January, I was reading a book called, I think it was Your Money and Your Brain. It was something about uh, the stock market and the psychology and the way people take a look at money and at wealth. And that a lot of people that are not wealthy, they get very envious and very negative towards people that are wealthy. And that actually that is what's holding them back to get to this point as well. And I thought it was a very good book. And I think it was called Your Money and Your Brain. Definitely check that out. And I could see that being true, man. Like if you think that money is the root of all evil, you're going to have this disdain for it. And yeah. you're just actively going, I mean, not maybe not actively, but subconsciously work against yourself. for Definitely. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, everyone who's rich is going to be a saint or a good person. There's a lot of people that aren't, but 
I don't think that should define who is a good person. And I think you should not be envious of someone who has more than you. You should always be happy for them because I'm pretty sure they did something right to get to this point. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What song do you currently have on repeat? <laughs> yeah, it's also a good question, especially, I'm not sure about you, but when I write programs, I actually like to listen to music a lot. But sometimes if I get to a serious bug, I have to turn all the music off because otherwise I can't focus. Uh, right now on repeat, I have Take On Me by Aha, if you know that. Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> that's, that's, oh, Just man. can't get it out of my head, to be honest. That's not going to be out of my head all day now, too. That's a great song. That's a good one. I've been listening to a lot of deep house recently, instrumental deep mm-hmm. house. And it's just been like re- nice and relaxing. And Yeah, and just- yeah I get that. It's, like, that's what I love about music as well. It's, uh, again, depending on what I need to do, if I need to focus, you can listen to different music. But if something is getting a little more intense, it just, it just helps a lot. And I can recommend that to everyone as well. If you have a coding problem, you can solve it. Don't stick too much to it, but turn on some good music. It might help. And if not, just go to bed and you'll wake up and uh, realize, ah, okay, that's how I solved that. Yeah, this is actually true. Like, this is a big thing. Like, taking a break from stuff, stepping yeah. away from stuff, it, it really does help you get some new insight. We're going to go ahead and jump into the random question generator. All right, let's go ahead. All right, here we go. What incredibly strong opinion do you have that is completely unimportant in the grand scheme of things? Think about that for a while. Uh, incredibly strong opinion that is completely unimportant. I sometimes think way too much about food, which is not really going to matter, but about the things that I want to cook. And I put a lot of emphasis on the way I prepare my meals. I like to cook a lot. Nice. And... Sometimes I just put so much effort into that and I don't think it's going to matter uh, a whole lot to the grand scheme of things, whether that's my life or the life of my family. But I still have a very strong opinion about the way I want to prepare my food. Do you have a signature dish that you're well known for? Generally, I like to prepare a lot of Asian dishes because my girlfriend is Chinese and I got into that quite a lot. Um, But yeah, it's going to be a mixture of those, either something Asian or something very Western that involves a lot of meat. Nice. What is one of your favorite smells? Ah, that's also a good question. I think vanilla is great. Like ever since I was a little kid, like vanilla ice cream was always my favorite, but just the smell of vanilla, if you actually have an actual vanilla bean, not just the, like the, like the, you know, the chemical stuff and actual vanilla bean is such an amazing smell. Just, I don't think anything can beat that. I've never actually seen a vanilla bean in real life only just the it's like some of the the recipes ask you to actually like if you bake a lot of recipes ask you to put in a vanilla bean and you have to scratch out like the the, the black stuff um, from the bean at the moment you do that it just smells like heaven ah got it, got it. can only recommend it gotta get my hands on some vanilla bean what story does your family always tell about you ah that's also a very good question Actually, I don't have to pass on it. I'm not able to think of anything right now. Yeah, no worries. Let's do one last one here. Sure. What's one of your favorite comfort foods? It's also a good question, actually. Comfort foods. I mean, sweets are always helpful, but I don't like to get too much into them. I do like salted caramel a lot. I don't know what it's about that, but it's just, you get into it. Like the idea of sweet and salty, you know, a lot of recipes ask you to put a, a little, little bit of salt into your cake. And I always wondered, well, why would you do that? Why would you put salt in your cake? But ever since I had salted caramel, I realized why. Yeah, yeah. I like it's like that. because it's two opposites. And I think the, the, the salt makes the sweet taste even more intense because it's just distracting you from it. Yeah. You wouldn't expect that. Yeah, salted caramel is delicious. And actually, like I was making pancakes for breakfast this morning, and actually, I put a little bit of salt in my pancakes. And uh, nice. And I'm hoping, as a good Canadian, you put on maple syrup. Exactly. Yes. Real, real maple. <laughs> that stuff is so hard to get by here. Uh, everything. Really? I, like, the, like the best example is um, like the brown sugar you have. I'm sure it's the same in Canada, but the, in the United States, the brown sugar you have, there's like uh, dark brown sugar and light brown sugar, and it's this very thick sugar. It's like I think they put I'm not sure what it's called, but I think they put the syrupy stuff into the sugar to make it uh, like this. Mm. This just doesn't exist over here. Molasses. You just can't find it. But all of the recipes that I've I was in the United States quite a while. 
all the things that I had there that required this brown sugar, like all the recipes, I just can't prepare them here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's the molasses, I think that's, ah, that's called. Molasses, yeah. Well, you can make it yourself, I guess, but I think yeah. it's a bit too much work for something like sugar. Yeah. Dennis, how can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you online? How can they connect with you? Oh, well, in general, um, well, you can still reach me on Instagram, even though I don't post that much anymore. If someone writes me there, I'm always going to be replying. And if people have questions and I sometimes wonder how they still find me if I haven't posted in three months and they still ask me questions and I'm still happy about that and I love to answer those. So feel free to shoot me a question there. But also on LinkedIn, I'm uh, very much available. And I like it when, you know, I like it when people write me they had on recruiters, that always helps. <laughs> and just just have some something to discuss about. And I love seeing what other people do. I know not everyone is going to share the way they design their architectures, but just talking about this stuff, I think it's very interesting. And I'm looking very much forward to the day we can have uh, live meetups and live conferences again. Definitely, man. Well, you know, you can always join in on one of my open office hours. I've got, you know, I've got a couple of them a week. One yeah, I see, I see your LinkedIn posts a lot and I always take a look at those videos and I think it's, and, and the posts you make, I think they're very inspirational and I hope you keep doing what you're doing. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate that. Dennis, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show, man. Really appreciate having you here. I was very happy to be here.